You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Howard University President Dr. Wayne Frederick joined the Washington Post to discuss how he's leading the historically black college through a global pandemic, an economic downturn, and racial unrest. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. My guest this afternoon is a surgeon, a scholar, and the 17th president of Howard University here in Washington, D.C., Dr. Wayne Frederick. Dr. Frederick, thank you very much for coming on Washington Post Live. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So, Dr. Frederick, you've decided that Howard University will remain online rather than in person due to the coronavirus pandemic. Why? Yeah. You know, we had some vulnerabilities that we were concerned about. The coronavirus uh, pandemic has disproportionately affected African-Americans. And so we really had a high bar uh, to cross in order to bring our entire campus back in order to keep them safe, especially our faculty and staff and those who may have comorbidities. We were prepared to do that. We set up our own testing uh, capability. We have a hospital. And so we were preparing to do that. However, uh, when the mayor decided that you would have to quarantine for 14 days if you came back from about 29 states, that covered about 40% of our student population um, who we were going to bring back. And we just, we, at that point, we didn't feel that we could do that safely uh, and execute on that. So we decided the safest thing to do uh, would be to proceed with online. We have our health sciences students here and some faculty and a few sports teams, but significantly decreased and nobody's in the residence hall. So what factors will you consider if you decide to have students in, in, in classrooms again? So we look at the state of the pandemic at that point. Uh, DC has done a fantastic job of uh, keeping the infection rate down and it appears that uh, that spread at least locally is down. Um, as that happens around the country, Uh, we will keep track of that. That'll be one factor. The second factor will be uh, as people start coming back into the city and the city opens up more, uh, does that still stay the same? Uh, The third factor will be our own capacity to test. That testing clearly for the universities around the country that we've been observing who've done this well, uh, their testing capacity has been critical and has been key. And now that we have a lab stood up, we feel that we will be able to do that. We want to make sure that that lab is functioning at the highest level possible. And so those would be some of the primary factors that we will look at. And of course, the sentiment of the faculty, are they willing uh, to be in the classroom with students? So I, I find it interesting. You said you've been talking to um, other universities, I would assume fellow university presidents. What are you hearing from them? What challenges are they facing that you're also facing, or maybe more importantly, that you're not facing? You know, I'm, I'm chair of the consortium of universities here in the Washington region, and uh, we've had a mixed uh, you know, experience of some of us being online, some having in person. And what I'm hearing uh, is testing. Uh, University of Maryland and George Mason in particular have really stood up extremely robust testing um, protocols, and that appears to be very important. The other thing that I'm hearing uh, is culture. You know, I heard a great saying just a couple of days ago, and that is that culture is tolerated behavior. And that probably applies even more so to this particular circumstance. What are we going to tolerate as a university community? And are we really going to look out for one another? I think that Howard students and faculty and staff can do that. Uh, But you have to sometimes put that to the test and see if your culture is really ready for that. I think we are, but we are looking at the experiences of the universities who have been successful 
And that appears to be the case that the tolerated behavior is really good behavior. Uh, that, well, that's, I was about to ask, what is, what is defined as good behavior? Yeah, you know, good behavior would be that you're following the rules. You, you're washing your hands frequently, you're maintaining distancing, you, you're uh, keeping your mask on. And you have to remember, uh, the problem with university campuses like Howard University is that you can control the environment internally and police that environment, meaning that if a student doesn't uh, wear a mask uh, outside of their room in hallways or uh, to a classroom, you can you know, encourage that student to get a mask or even give them one. Um, or for that matter, if, if you have a student who's a repeat offender, that's a student that you could probably advise they need to go back home. But when they leave the campus, you don't have that ability to police what's happening and to observe them uh, 24 seven. And so you have to rely on the staff, the faculty, that when they leave these hallways, and they go home in their communities, they go to the grocery store, you know, the other activities they participate in, going to restaurants, et cetera, that they are going to follow the rules. And I think that's the key with respect to good behavior, that we recognize that everything that we do uh, can affect each other. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the things hopefully we learn as a country about the pandemic, that we all are in this together. Dr. Frederick, I noticed that one one behavior you didn't mention was partying. So since your since your students are are online, you don't have to worry about campus parties, do you? Well, I, I do it right now, but I suspect that that's something that we will also, you know, have to talk to our students about. I mean, we have to be realistic. These are young people; uh, they socialize. We want them to socialize. That's part of what um, we give. Uh, when they come to a university and part of that socializing unfortunately is partying the thing is it's very hard to socially distance uh keep your mask on and do all the right things if you're partying and that's just one activity that we have to discourage uh, one, one more thing i want to ask you before I, I go on to a question about tuition but you know, senator kamala harris a, a proud alum uh talks a lot about in her book and after she was selected as uh as Vice President Biden's vice presidential running mate about being, is it on the green or on the quad? <laughs> on the yard. Uh, <laughs> on, uh, on, on the yard. So since yeah. everyone is online, that can't even happen, can it? Yeah. Or are the medical students doing that? No, the, I tell you, the medical students have been a model of good behavior. Uh, two of them <laughs> check the, their, their fellow classmates in when they go to the hospital every day. Um, they do temperature screenings. They have absolutely been fantastic. And today happens to be our white coat ceremony. I'll be addressing them later and I'm going to have a whole lot of praise for them. But the yard has been eerily quiet. I have been out there almost every day. I come on campus. I've been going there since 1988 as a freshman and it's a special place. And to see it without everyone else has been an absolutely airy experience. But I think it's going to be one that I'm going to cherish seeing it that quietly, hearing the clock tower play the alma mater at the top of the hour. I mean, all of those things are just absolutely uh, something to behold and something to really make you cherish without the students and really will cherish it when the students are back. And if, if memory serves, Friday, isn't it Friday is the particular day that's <laughs> big on the yard where everyone yeah. you know, dresses, dresses to impress? <laughs> And just That's exactly right. You know, two, two fighters about. Ago, yeah, two fighters ago, Senator Harris was here for an interview, and I, I went out and uh, met her at, at the Founders Library, right at the, the base of that yard. And 
we both were uh, remarking at how different the campus looks on a Friday uh, in the fall. It just has never looked like that. And it was a day with great weather as well, so it would have been crowded. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about uh, more about the students and in particular a, a, a question that is important to them and that's about tuition. A recent poll of college students found, not surprisingly, 93% of them believe colleges should cut tuition if they're going to hold classes online. What's Howard's policy on this issue? Yeah, we feel strongly that our online instruction is of a high quality and we don't think that we're compromising there. However, uh, the unemployment rate in the country uh, as we are in a recession is about 8%. For African-Americans who are disproportionately impacted, it's about 13%. And that's the known unemployment rate. You really look at every possibility, it probably is as high as 15%. So with that in mind, and with predominantly Black students coming here, we decided that we would give what we call hard grants to support uh, students with hardship that we anticipate would have a parent who may have lost a job or getting decreased wages, et cetera. And in some circumstances, because of the disproportionate impact of COVID, have a parent who may have been hospitalized for a while, or God forbid, a parent who may have passed. So what we have done is for all our uh, Pell Grant eligible students, we've given them a grant of $1,250. And for any student who does not get a Pell Grant, but also has an expected family contribution that does not quite meet the cost of attendance, we've given them a grant of 500. That's gonna cost us about $8.1 million this fall. Uh, we felt it was the right thing to do. And then the second thing that we did as an institution is we have not taken any action on the labor force. We employ more African-American faculty than any other institution in this country. And so I think it was important for us to stand together to, to make adjustments elsewhere. We're gonna look at this every quarter. Um, so far for the first quarter, we seem to be on target and we're gonna make every effort uh, to not have layoffs and personnel and contribute to the African-American unemployment rate. Dr. Frederick, can I get you to, to confirm something? Is it, is it right enrollment retention has been higher than expected? Um, is that right? That, that, that's exactly right. Um, it, and this was surprising, but it does have a little bit of a story behind it. Last year, the Department of Justice had made a decision that when colleges and universities get students to commit on May 1st, in the past, we had almost a bit of a gentleman's and ladies agreement that we would not uh, basically offer students a scholarship after they've committed to another school. Um, they felt that that might be decreasing competition, and so that rule is now no longer. So as of May 1st this year, all those students may have committed to us, they could have received scholarship packages from elsewhere. So planning with that in mind, we had an enrollment strategy to admit more students expecting uh, to lose some to that activity. So we went in pre-pandemic with a very strong um, recruitment cycle and a very strong retention cycle. And what has happened is that we targeted 2,100 freshmen for enrollment. We ended up with 2,450. And uh, we also um, really wanted to retain more students. Since I've been here, we've gotten the graduation rate up 20%, four-year graduation rate, and we have aspirations to go even higher. And so we had some things in place to do that. And to our surprise, that went even higher than we thought. So we had 9,400 students last fall, and I'm happy to report that we have five students short of 11,000 uh, right now. We've had a 17% increase in our enrollment year over year. Okay, so I, I'm sorry, I was sort of blown away by that that jump in, in, in freshman enrollment. Um, I guess I was asking that question because of wondering if the enrollment the enrollment retention is a result of students 
being able to do their classes online. But what it sounds like that enrollment retention is because of a concerted strategy that has nothing to do with coronavirus and everything to do with um, figuring out a way to compete to compete with other universities for students. Yeah, I would say the majority was to compete. I, I do think a, a portion of it does have to do with the fact that we're online because I think students and, and parents have made the decision that, listen, uh, you know, we have a pandemic, you're going to be at home anyway, let's make every effort to stay in school. You don't have the expense of having to stay in residence hall, having to get a meal plan. And so that makes it uh, probably more feasible uh, financially. And so, you know, let, let's go after it. The other thing is, I think there was a lot of sentiment that freshmen in, in particular would take a year off. The question is, take a year off and do what? So if you take, if you could take a year off and go backpacking in Europe, fine. But uh, to take a year off now when you're going to be at home anyway and you can take some classes, uh, we think that's to do. And we're so convinced about that that we also are considering potentially having a mini master in the winter to give students another opportunity to take even mm -hmm. another class so that they can matriculate. We are really focused on getting students through the cycle, Jonathan. And I think especially for African-American students, that's a key contribution that we must make. Right. Dr. Frederick, since uh, the killing of George Floyd, we have seen protests, racial justice protests all over the country, including here in Washington, D.C., as the president of the preeminent uh, HBCU in the country. How do you view these protests that have been happening around the country? You know, I think one, the protests are necessary. Two, I think uh, they have to continue to be nonviolent and they have to continue until uh, we're heard. But one critical thing that must happen on this campus and with my students and with my faculty and with my broader community of alum is we must turn that protest into policy. And I try to always convince our students to do that. So our homecoming week, uh, which will be virtual, we are gonna focus on a symposium uh, of protest to policy, because I think it's absolutely critical that we represent as part of the brain trust of America around these issues that have plagued us that we have been researching uh, since our inception 153 years ago, that we need to be at the forefront for providing solutions because our lawmakers are gonna need to hear from people in the community like us who have different ideas about what policing should look like, who have different ideas about what health disparity, these the health disparities cause and what the lack of intergenerational wealth it causes in the African-American community. And I believe that we have some scholars on this campus that have excellent ideas, uh, you know, that they can give to the government and others uh, to bring about change. And so we're gonna be at the forefront of trying to bring that about. In a statement to campus in May addressing the twin pandemics of the coronavirus and racism, you said, quote, we were born for such a time as this. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, Howard University was founded on March 2nd, 1867. It was signed, uh, a charter uh, was signed into uh, law by uh, the president at that time, the 17th president of the United States, President Johnson, who was a known racist, probably the most openly racist president that we've had to date. On that same day that he signed uh, that charter for Howard, he also vetoed the first Reconstruction Acts. He also ended up uh, result setting, uh, I would say, about a strategy to close the Freedmen's Bureau, the very Freedmen's Bureau that funded Howard in its beginning. So the point is that Howard was born um, out of an era uh, after the Civil War to educate 
freed slaves uh, moving from the South. The hospital predated the university by five years, was, was named Freedman's Hospital, again, to provide care for those moving from the South to the North. And so as we look at that birth, and we look at the challenges we had then, and you created such a university like this that would produce uh, the types of alum that we have, the Tony Morrisons, the Vernon Jordans, the Chadwick Bozemans, the Senator Harris, um, we were born for this very time. And I think in this time of our nation's strife, especially around racial inequities, uh, we must be at the forefront of those solutions. I'm going to bring in a question from the audience um, from Myron. And Myron, I, I apologize in advance if I mess up your last name, but Myron Selivanchik uh, from Oregon. What good and not so good is coming out of Black Lives Matter? Well, I think one um, major good that's coming out of Black Lives Matter is our understanding of human dignity. And I think that that's an important good. Uh, the humanity that must be expressed by each of us to everyone, regardless of religion, sexual orientation, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, is one that we must appreciate. And Black Lives Matter has certainly brought that to the forefront, in my opinion. I think one of the things that has been a difficulty is being able to communicate that and get into the discussion. But that's more a symptom of our national uh, disposition at this current time. Our inability to speak to each other, um, when we disagree or, or have had different experiences is part of what I think is causing some confusion and some concern. You, you talk about defunding the police and people take it to one extreme um, or the other and don't recognize that we have an opportunity and a space uh, to rethink um, what we think about police. My father was a police officer, died a month short of my third birthday. I would hope that he was a police officer that did exactly what you want them to do, to protect and serve. I would have wanted him to come home safely every night as well um, had he lived uh, and for me to understand what he did. But the reality is I also would have wanted him to treat others with dignity, to be trained to intervene in circumstances where somebody may have mental health and recognize that there was a different way to intervene and not necessarily the use of force being the only way to do so. You know, th th this brings to mind if, if Howard students were on campus uh, this week, when um, the, the three police officers who were involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor weren't indicted, and the one who was indicted wasn't even in, basically indicted for the shots that didn't kill her, how would Howard University students have reacted in the moment? You know, I, th I think that they would have been hurt. Uh, they would have protested. They probably would have had a vigil in the middle of the yard um, for Breonna Taylor. Um, they probably would have marched uh, down to uh, the White House as an example, where oftentimes that's where the expression of our frustration, I think, as a nation is directed. Um, they probably would have even protested and demand that I make some statements or do some other things uh, that they would have seen uh, as things to be done. What I primarily hope they would have done though is enter that discourse of how to make it better and to recognize that engagement is part of what we must do. We can't isolate ourselves around our ideologies, but we must engage with the very folks that we want to change their disposition uh, to do that. We have a, some very interesting activity on this campus around some of these issues and I think bringing those to the forefront and giving them a platform uh, for that expression 
It's part of what my responsibility is. My responsibility is to remove the barriers so that they can protest and have their voice, but at the same time to hold them accountable uh, for providing solutions. Now we have to talk about um, this pretty <clears throat> excuse me this pretty incredible gift um, that Howard University um, uh, School of Medicine received from Bloomberg Philanthropies. It was thirty two point eight million dollars. What was what was that donation for? You know, um, we were approached by Bloomberg Philanthropies about his Greenwood Initiative. He has an initiative to try to create intergenerational wealth among African American communities. And looking at the pandemic and the disproportionate impact it was having, looking at healthcare disparities, he his group wanted to see how could they uh, close that. And so when they approached us, we felt that helping our medical students matriculate was one aspect. How it sends more African Americans to medical school and in the history of med formal medical education in this country, Howard University has trained more Black physicians and produced more Black physicians than any other institution. And so recognizing that the four Black medical schools in this country really had a critical role to play. Um, they felt that an investment that would help those students graduate with less debt would be the right type of investment. And I think they got that uh, spot on. It was correct, the correct thing to do. If those students graduate with less debt, they have more freedom to do what they already do, which is they tend to go into underserved communities and serve those communities well. And then they also have an opportunity to build their wealth and hopefully pass that on to others. And so I think it is the exact type of investment and, and the exact, exact type of activity that I would say we need as a country in order to really undo uh, some of the structural racism that has really prevented uh, the advancement of African-Americans. Let me bring in another question from the audience. Carla Brewer from South Carolina asks, what can universities do for Black undergraduates to better prepare to better prepare them for application and acceptance to medical school? Yeah, that's a great question. As I just stated, you know, Howard University sends more African Americans to medical school, so we do think uh, we, we we have looked at this uh, very carefully. One of the things about preparation is making sure uh, the students do have a rigorous academic exposure. Um, in their undergrad experience. And that's one of the things about coming to Howard University that we think is helpful. We have a medical school on our, on our campus and a hospital. So our undergrad students do get exposure to that uh, very early on. And I think that that's a critical aspect uh, of what you do. So as students make decisions about where to go to undergrad, et cetera, I often encourage them to think about that. You don't have to go to a college that has a medical school um, or a hospital, there's an advantage to doing that, but then the opportunity to go shadow physicians, to spend time in that environment is important. The admission test is still um, a challenge for African-Americans, and that's something that we continue to work at here. Every summer, Howard University brings students from historically black colleges and universities to Howard on our dime. We have them spend six weeks. We give them MCAT prep. We do didactic sessions with them, and we also give them clinical exposure. We've seen those students, some of them are applying to medical school for the second time, and we've seen their MCAT scores rise as well. And I think programs like that that help get students prepared as well are critical aspects of what undergrad students should be doing to get ready for medical school applications. You know, as you were speaking, I was trying to, uh, I was reminded of a question I should have asked you at the beginning of the conversation we were talking about your enrollment, enrollment retention. Who is Howard University's biggest competitor for students? Oh, that, that's a that's an easy question to ask. You name any major university in the country, and that's who we compete against. We have students here 
who have been accepted to three Ivy League schools. We have students who have been accepted to major state schools. We get students from 46 states and 71 countries. And so we compete at every level that you can imagine, the other HBCUs, et cetera. And that's the unique thing about Howard University. There's no one uh, competitor group, as it were, that we're competing for students. We're competing on a broad base. And I think that's the other thing that makes um, coming to this university very unique. You meet people from a wide variety of places with a wide variety of academic backgrounds, all extremely talented and extremely intelligent. Um, I can't let you go without getting you to react to um, a story we had in the Washington Post, um, a, a local matter. Um, the university offered to hire the DC city administrator who had negotiated a big tax abatement for the school to build a new hospital and re redevelop its land. And an inve ethics investigation on that city administrator found that on the same day that you offered this person a job, someone on your staff contacted that person's office to enlist their support for increasing the tax abatement by another several million dollars. And the question is, why, why did you try to hire a government official who negotiated the tax break that was still awaiting final approval? Is first yeah, question. Fair, yeah, fair question. Uh, and and I'll, I'll tell you the circumstances of this. Um, we had been negotiating this tax abatement for a while. And actually, it was a compromise position from the original matter, which was we wanted to participate in the hospital in Southeast. Um, the mayor and her staff on, on recommendation by the same city administrator decided to go in a, in a different direction. Um, I disagreed with that decision. I disagreed with uh, the city administrator's recommendation, uh, probably vehemently, to be quite honest. And if there's one issue uh, for which I would not be interested in hiring him. It would be uh, because we disagreed on it so strongly would have been the hosp that hospital issue. Nevertheless, the tax abatement uh, was a, uh, a deal that the mayor brought to us uh, to assist Howard, for which I'm very grateful, um, it, and it was a, a good deal. We had a discussion in front of uh, the council about it um, at the end of June, and at, at that time, uh, for all intents and purposes, it had to go for a vote. It was essentially, from as far as I'm concerned, wrapped up. The office of the chief financial officer continued to engage with us just to make sure that all of the finances made sense. And that was an important and critical aspect of it. The way the tax abatement works is that we would get a tax abatement over a certain period of time for the land that we would be vacating from the hospital to redevelop it. And there was some concern about the value of that tax abatement. It's not one for one. I know the papers report that it's a, we are getting 200 and something million dollars towards a $450 million hospital. That's not how it's going to work. If a developer shows up and we provide a tax abatement and we want them to give us money up front against that tax abatement, they will give us a percentage of the tax abatement. So if the tax abatement is 200, they may decide to give us 80 million as an example. So we were concerned that the numbers that we thought we would get from it and what was intended for us to get from it to put towards the hospital that there was a gap. My team, of course, I, I had a, it was the first time I met with the city administrator. He had reached out uh, to one of my board members about making a transition. He had previously interviewed uh, for a higher education job elsewhere, was a finalist and they took somebody internal. So he had an interest in joining higher ed. 
And by the time he and I uh, were speaking, my team, unbeknownst uh, to, to them, had sent a note back over saying, I'm just concerned about the value of the tax abatement uh, to make sure that we were getting uh, the same fair value. And he and I had just had an initial conversation about him wanting to do that. He has been the city administrator for five and a half years, the longest serving, somebody I respect. While I disagreed with him on the hospital deal, as I said before, I grew uh, to respect him. I think we have a mutual respect. I want Howard to have talented um, people, and especially a, a young African-American male like himself. I thought um, he would fit in. We were looking for somebody to lead our strategy implementation. And so that was a conversation that we had. Again, and I think the ethics review um, found that to be to be fine. I think what he was fined for was when that went over, they felt he should have recused himself and have somebody else respond. His response was that he felt the value was the same and that he wasn't going to recommend a change. So I, I love the city. I would never do anything to compromise uh, the institutions of the city um, or the mayor's office. And so we remain committed to providing great healthcare and to continuing to move forward uh, with our hospital plan. And so just so that I'm clear, so if I'm listening to you correctly, and thank you for thank you for your very detailed answer, there's no, no connection between the offer of the job to the city administrator, administrator the tax abatement, or even the uh, the request for an additional an additional additional tax abatement the same day the job was offered. Yeah, and I'll go one step further. The one reason, if any reason I had for not ha not hiring him, if I had any bad blood, was because I disagree with his position um, on. Uh, Howard Hospital and Howard not participating in the Southeast deal. And I think anybody who knows me and anybody who knows him knows that we absolutely differ um, on that issue. I, I am planning and was looking at hiring him because of the skill set that he brought. He's run complex cities and, and city councils and has been an extremely good, I think, uh, administrator for DC and how that's the kind of talent that Howard can use as we move into the future. And so that's the basis of, and he had an interest um, in us that he expressed. And so those were the factors uh, for me in engaging him. Dr. Frederick, last question. Do you have a time frame for when Howard students might be able to return physically to campus? Yeah, unfortunately I don't. Uh, we're hopeful about the spring, but I have to be honest, I'm concerned that vaccine distribution, if a vaccine is approved, uh, may not be where we would expect it to be in time for the spring. And that is a genuine concern that I have. Again, we have a vulnerable population that's largely African-American, and so we have to be very careful with that. And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Wayne Frederick, president of Howard University, thank you very, very much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.